You know, when a baby's born, it's uh, common, right, to, to your first look at the baby and wonder, who she look like, mom or dad, right? And you kind of look at the shape of their face and maybe the color of their eyes or color of their hair, if they have hair, right, or have a lot of hair, little hair, right? And you just look at the baby and it's just sort of a, a common kind of fun thing to do to look at the baby and everybody playfully debates about, you know, who's this baby look like? And when babies grow up and they become children, they begin to act on their own. You know, we, we wonder, you know, well, she or he's just like a chip off the old block, right? They're just like mom or just like dad. And this just suggests to us that we're born with a way about us. We're born with a nature. And the, the view of the Bible is, is that this means we have two natures. We have kind of our human nature that is often sinful, and we have a nature that is meant to bear resemblance to and to share the nature of our creator, you might say of our spiritual parent. So in 1 John 3, if you want to look at your uh, bulletin with me, I'm sure that for many of you these are very common words, but they're hugely emphatic, right? They seem absolute, they seem stark, even harsh to modern ears, which is more attuned to relativistic pluralism. And all that really means is that there isn't really a way that things are external to our thinking or feeling about it. That all there is really in the world is what we think about it or what we feel about it. And everybody has their own view on those things. And so those plural viewpoints all get relativized. They get flattened out. Like there isn't one way of viewing the world that's better than another or more helpful than another, that all these ways of understanding the world are relativized. But then John, like look at verse four, makes these really stark statements like sin is lawlessness. Well, sin, that word there means like sort of you're trying to do right, but you miss the mark. Lawlessness is a different sort of word. Lawlessness isn't a mistake or an occasional slip-up. But lawlessness is a kind of a heart rebellion against God. It's a, it's a considered rejection of his ways. So that in our will, there's an opposition to God's will. In our desires is something that is bent differently than, than the desires of God for us. And in this condition, the mind is then confused and misguided. The emotions begin to dominate our person in often very conflicting ways. And our bodies and our social relationships then are constantly inclined towards and filled with regular habits of wrongdoing. And in this condition, the intellect finds rationales of all kinds. I'm doing this because, and then you just kind of fill in the blanks. But if you look at verse five, John says, but you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away this ongoing misguided confusion in us, that he would take away our sins. That is to say, he would deliver us from our lawless hearts. Now, not perfection. This is one of the places where we misunderstand John, right? Because earlier in our series in John, we read where he said, if anybody claims not to have sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. But if you do sin, we have this advocate before the Father. So John never has perfection in mind. 
What he has in mind is a loving, devoted allegiance in replace of rebellion. So you can wonder or not whether you like religion. You can wonder or not whether you like church. You can wonder or not whether you like the, the effect of religion in the world. There's, there's a lot of places to wonder about, but it gets down to it when we think, where's my devoted allegiance? And so John is just simply trying to say here that sin is not meant to be the identifying characteristic for those who live in Christ. For John to see Jesus for who he is and to loyally follow him is to have an ever-increasing rejection of sin and evil. John just knows this is the way it is. Remember, always keep in your mind who John is. Right, you know the old saying, consider the source. Like you read in the comment section of a, of a blog or an article or something, right? And you just, so, well, that guy's just, you know, flaming people. So you know, like, consider the source. Well, you know who John is? John is the one who is most known for being loving, right? So like whatever you think, you know, to be loving in its sort of cool form is today, John was cool before cool. He, he was the one person everybody knew who you, like, you could go talk to. John was the kind of person who made space for people around him. He didn't suck all the oxygen out of the room. He wasn't condescending to people. He, he, had, he was legendary. Like if you could get around John, that was like a legendary gift because of his quality of being. So whatever we read here that might seem harsh, what if you thought of it as wisdom? The wisdom of somebody who lived this himself, saw how Thomas got through his doubts and how Peter got through having denied Jesus and, and how the, the sons of thunder got past, you know, being misguided about what Jesus was thinking and doing. Like John saw this happen. He actually saw human beings change. He saw people who were radically disconnected from Jesus. They weren't really in any way living in his life. He saw people whose lives were in rebellion. That is to say, they were contrary to what God was thinking and doing. And he saw how that these people actually changed and that they actually did have an ever-increasing rejection of sin and evil and an ever-increasing apprehension of Jesus and who he was and began to follow him. On the other hand, though, verse 8 Again, I want you to try to hear this as wisdom, that the devil is characterized by sin, and Jesus came to defeat the devil in his work and to free creation for its God-intended life, to love God and to love neighbor. So again, don't think of that first as religious rhetoric. Think of, think of it as somebody who was actually observing their world, observing what was happening in people, and simply reporting to us. So that then verse nine is not a kind of a moralism. Again, it's wisdom that no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. For no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Like once you saw Jesus and saw what God was up to in Jesus and decided to be with Jesus in that, well then sin just sort of naturally falls away. But if you haven't seen him or known him or give yourself to him, then you continue to battle for sin. I love the way Gene gets this in the message. It, he picks up on the relational dynamic of verse nine when he says, for sin is a major disruption of God's relational order. That no one who lives deeply in Jesus Christ makes a habitual practice of sin. And the idea here is, is that when Jesus is present to our mind, 
Sin is normally absent. Like, isn't that right? It's very hard to have Jesus present to your mind and to be intentionally engaging in sin. For that to happen, you kind of have to banish any thoughts of Jesus. You have to actually hold God at arm's length. You might find all kinds of rationales for doing that, but you have to kind of create that godless space, you might say, around you so that you can continue to engage in sin. And so for John, holiness is not a command fueled by fear of punishment, but holiness is to him an invitation that's fueled by security of God's love for us. John knows that big, permanent changes are not brought about by threats, but are brought about by safety and assurance, the kind of safety and assurance we have because we actually know that God loves us, demonstrated to us by the cross of Christ. And most importantly, reading this in Easter time, the proof and the power of the resurrection. For John, that's what funds all this. It's kind of like an, oh my gosh, the things that Jesus taught were right. They're not mere religion. They're not Christianity, as opposed to Islam or as opposed to Buddhism. You can't reduce this to what we now think of as the world's religions. And if you reduce this life that John is revealing to us to a university course on comparative religions, it just, there's a reason that falls flat. That's just an intellectualizing of world religions. And it has little or nothing to do with the lived experience that John had and saw in others. He knows that what produced, quote, holiness in Peter was not a command by Jesus that made him fear punishment. But we have a Peter who wrote First and Second Peter, the Peter we know as sort of holy Peter, because as I said to you before, Jesus said, Peter, I'll see you on the beach, and we'll reconnect. And yes, you did deny me, but that denial doesn't define you. What defines you is your relationship with me, and we'll reconnect. And, and so when Jesus then raises from the dead, for John, this just proves that those sorts of things are the kinds of things that are the true patterns of true religion. So the Bible often talks about this in terms of new birth, right? So in new birth, the old nature is gone and a new nature is born. And what John is trying to help us see here is that the new birth means something like a new DNA that begins to spread in our heart, our mind, our will, our desires, and that increasingly points us in a Godward direction. So that if we were to read Peter's words in 2 Peter 4, and I think again, you know, here this is wisdom, that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him so that his nature would become part of us. Then we could escape our evil desires and the corrupt influences of this world. Well, again, what if that's Peter's lived wisdom? Like Beth just said, she went to a conference. Do you believe her? Can you prove it? I mean, you, you could probably find some evidences. A used airline ticket, a hotel receipt, some meal receipts. Does it prove it to you? What would it take to prove it to you? How could you possibly know? 
Well, you just accept it in the course of things. And this is what Peter is talking about. This is what I know, that I had this one nature in me, and as hard as I tried to sort of gruntingly, moralistically bring that into line with God, it didn't happen. But one day I experienced God's divine power, and it began to give me everything I needed for a godly life. And this happened precisely through knowledge of him. See, the one thing you can't do with regard to religion is make it a category of non-knowledge. If you make religion only about belief and people's various beliefs, you can never act on that. You can only act on knowledge. Think about how fearful you'd be if you had to drive your car with a piece of black tape over your fuel gauge and just act on instinct. Think about how much then you would treasure knowledge if somebody would just, you know, take that duct tape off your fuel gauge and you could see, oh, this is what's real. And so I just want to encourage you, when you ever hear or read John, when you hear and read Peter, if, it just if you can, just stop thinking about that as religious jargon and think of it as the real lived experiential knowledge of genuine human beings who are at least as smart as you are. They had every bit the IQ that you do. Maybe in some cases, probably a lot more than the most of us. And so they're simply reflecting their life as they knew it. And so what they're saying to us in this sort of business of new nature, old nature, is that as we're following Christ, we're just playing a different game now. Or to switch metaphors, we're playing a different piece of music. And so we might slip up and play a bad note, but when we do, we go right back to the new game that we're playing and back to the habits that we're trying to form for that new game. So this is why John says in verse seven, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anybody lead you off of that new game that you're playing now, that new piece of music that you're now working on. And the first step in doing so is to see the sinfulness of sin, the incompatibility and how, it, how it's in, incompatible with following Jesus. See, in our, our basic view of being human today is that I ought to do what I want to do so that I can feel like I'm being a real person, like I'm being honest to myself. And often what that reduces down to is habituated autonomy. So I'm then just left to myself and my own habits of thinking and feeling and doing. If I divorce myself from any story, I'm just simply left with myself. And John is simply saying, you have to come to see that that's not true. That the habits of sin that people pick in that, there's no such thing as, well, this is just me. Like just in the last few weeks, there's been five or six cases of very famous Christian leaders, we always say, quote, following. And those kind of things, they never happen in a detached way. So somebody does something crazy in a hotel room and it seems private, but it has actually global affect and is enormously discouraging to people. It's unspeakably discouraging. There is just no such thing as like 
privatized sin. There's no such thing as like sinning in a way that doesn't harm anybody else. And, and this is just the way I'm just trying to help you grapple with the sinfulness of sin, right? So that we don't just see it as these little, these little isolated incidences that don't harm anybody. What John wants us to see is, no, there's a real sinfulness to sin. In verse eight, this is why the Son of God appeared. Well, it's because of the sinfulness of sin and how it destroys humanity. You know, just have one dictator doing crazy stuff or one general doing crazy stuff or whatever. It, it, that, that kind of stuff is destroying to humanity. And so the Son of God has appeared to destroy that work of the devil. And this is why verse nine, that no one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed is in them and it's God's seed that's growing and it, and it begins to banish the darkness so that they can't go on sinning. And so John sees this battle that like there's this old nature in us, that sort of the devil's work in us, and that it's marked by the pervasive ruin of the soul that constantly deflects the mind from God, just constantly takes our mind off God, because when God's rejected, sensuality becomes central. And this is what John's getting at, that there is actually a power, and that when we lose any sense of God's presence with us, what the Bible calls the fear of God, like it's just the awesome wonder of God, when that gets rejected, well then sensuality becomes central. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 4 when he says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles, darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, giving themselves over to sensuality. Now, not always sex, giving yourself over to that which you can feel by your senses. I mean, sex is usually at the top of the list, but it's not the only thing. But of course, this never works because misguided sensuality actually deadens the senses. Jesus said, drink of that water and you'll thirst again. Or in our discipleship group this morning, reading C.S. Lewis, there's that famous sentence from Lewis where the senior devil is telling the junior devil, here's what you want to do. You want to give them an ever-increasing hunger for an ever-decreasing satisfaction. He said, that, that's the ticket. And so John just places this before us and says, well, then that, that gives us kind of a fundamental choice. We either live in the drama of God's unfolding kingdom or we live in our kingdom through sensuality of the body. I mean, essentially, this is what the scriptures hold before us. And so John tells us this morning that we have these two natures and that they're at work in our loves, they're at work in our desires, not just in our mental capacity, but in our affections. And they're in our spontaneous choices as well as in our well-thought-out decisions. It's what Paul means when he says, you know, that famous passage in Romans 7, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. Or you think of most of the chapter of Galatians 5, I can't read to you, but just remember this one sentence, that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. But those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so this is the kind of fundamental decision that lays before all of us. And so for those of us who are, you know, kind of constantly talking about spiritual formation around here, I think what this choice kind of leads us to is an obvious, feed what you want to grow and starve what you want to die and be patient as you go. Just do the next right thing. If you slipped up here, we'll just do the next right thing and do the next right thing. And before you know it, you'll begin to grow away from habituated autonomy 
to new habits of the heart that are not autonomous, but they're hooked to God's story and his love for you. That will rehabituate you. That will begin to grow in you a whole new set of desires, a whole new set of loves. For as Galatians 6 says, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap a whole different kind of life, an eternal life. So our gospel reading this morning regarding what you treasure, what you love, what you desire, Jesus, you know, is, you can see that it's Jesus's idea that gave John his. For Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because treasuring is the underlying force that pulls one's life either out of God's orbit or into alignment with God. What we actually treasure, what we cherish the most, is what drives us, and it either drives us into alignment with God or out of his orbit. That's the kind of harshness, you might say, or the, the real clarity that's in those words, you can't worship two gods at once. That loving one, you'll end up hating the other. That adoration of the one feeds contempt for the other. And so John's just trying to walk us through a choice this morning. And as we come to this quiet moment, I want to give you a moment to just think about this fundamental choice. To think with me for a moment that the aim of spiritual formation is obedience to Christ from an, from an inner conformity to Christ. The aim of spiritual formation is obedience to Christ that comes from an inner conformity to him. So in terms of our two natures and the spiritual battle that that phrase two natures implies, just do a check-in with God this morning and just honestly ask yourself how it's going. Maybe where your desires, your loves, your affections lie. Just do a little check-in. <laughs> 